0: Well, it's great to be with you again. My name is Jonathan Shumati. We're, today we're continuing our second sermon on the series, The Gospel of John, which I'm calling I Am. And we'll see why in a few minutes, why I'm calling this series uh, with that name. But today we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, uh, verse 3. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to get it and to open it to that to that uh, verse. And if you don't have a Bible, then I'd encourage you to try to find one, either use your app or some way following along with us and looking at God's Word yourself. I'd also encourage you to have a pen and a paper so that you can take notes, maybe a journal. As God speaks to you in and through His Word, I would encourage you to write these things down. And then after the sermon's over, take some time to, to look over what God has revealed to you through His Word, by His Spirit. And maybe take some notes, do some prayer, just have a time to reflect and to respond to what God is saying to you in His Word. With that in mind, let me begin with prayer before we dive in. Father, I thank you that you have shown us your Son, that you have given him to us, and that we, by the, by the Spirit, can have our eyes opened to see him for all that he is, as the eternal, divine Son of God. I pray this morning as we look at your word that you'd help me as a messenger to communicate what is there God, I confess that these words are far more majestic and grand than I could ever give voice to, but they are your words, and I believe your spirit will bless the preaching and the hearing of your word, and to that end, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we began by looking at verses 1 and 2, and we, we saw how John begins this story about Jesus by, by not with his earthly existence, but in fact with his pre-incarnate existence as the eternal Son of God. Here in verse 1, he actually uses the title, the Word of God. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he introduces us to the person that will become Jesus with this title, the Word of God. And I said that there had already been developing within Judaism this this. Idea that within God there was some unique aspect that was responsible for revealing God to us. That within God there was something unique that was bridging that gap between the holy and sovereign and eternal God and the finite and earthly and sinful creature. And that in, in the Old Testament, which were the Hebrew scriptures, their Bible, that when God is interacting with his people through his spoken word, that it is uniquely this aspect within God that is at, that is at work, and they called they called this aspect the Word of God, and John and John uses that understanding as a window to help begin to explain what has happened in and through Jesus. That God has come. That God has delivered His people. He has visited them and delivered them. And the person. The unique person within the Godhead that revealed God to us, that was the unique agent of our deliverance, is this, is the fulfillment of that Old Testament idea, this word of God. And today we're gonna see he's gonna take it one step further here in verse three. So, yes, if you have your Bible, open it up and we're gonna be looking at John 1 to 5. And I'll be reading out of the NASB, but you're welcome to read out of the NIV, ESV, NASB, King James, whatever version of the Bible that you're able to engage with God with and able to understand and able to take notes and, and able to apply it to your life, as so long as it is one that, that accurately depicts the original translation, whatever one works for you, go for it. If you have more questions about that, you can look online. Go talk to a pastor um, because there are a number of versions out there. And, you know, within evangelicalism, Different people have their preferences. I tend to like the NASB because it was just the one that when I began to read and study the Bible that I I, I grabbed onto and I began to memorize scripture with. But you're welcome to use any of those others that I mentioned or one that speaks most to you. So beginning here in verse 1 of chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it amen so here in verse 3 John is continuing with the exact same theme of verses 1 and 2 the big idea of these few verses opening up is is that the person who's going to become Jesus Christ who's going to come and dwell among us as a human being that this person is fully divine. These first few verses are all about the deity of Christ, that he is God, that in every page of the Old Testament, in every sentence, in every spoken word of God in the Old Testament, there is the word of God. There is the person who will become Jesus Christ. You see, John wants us to see that, that what God has done in and through Jesus is not new, that this person who has come is not new, that he is eternal, that he is divine, and that the same pattern of deliverance that we see in the Old Testament has now been fulfilled in and through Christ. But what he wants most of all, not only in these verses, but in the entire book that he's about to, to write, is for us to see and to know that Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is the proper name of God. Whenever in the scriptures, God himself and his identity is at stake, it is not the title Lord or the title God, but his name, Yahweh, that is written. And now our Bibles... For reasons I won't get into, when uh, the, the tradition is to write LORD, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, to write LORD in all caps, whenever the original language actually has the name of God, Yahweh. This is done out of reverence for God's name. But John's purpose, not only in these first few verses, but in the whole book, is for us to get such a a vision for who Jesus is. To believe in God, to believe in Jesus, is to believe that he is God. He tells us as much himself at the end of the book when he says, I write these things to you that you might have faith. What faith? Just faith in general? Just believe to believe? Faith that Jesus died for my sins? Even more, John says that you might believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. This whole book is not just that Jesus came to die on the cross to save sinners from sin. It is about who Jesus is. The reason why so many people love this book is because it uniquely portrays, excuse, portrays the true identity of Jesus, that he is Yahweh, that he is I am. So I'm calling this series I Am because the whole point of this book is for us to see God in and through Jesus. That's why, for example, whenever John records one of Jesus' miracles here in this gospel, he doesn't use the word miracle. He uses the word sign because these miracles are, have a purpose. A purpose of what? Of revealing to us Jesus's divine identity. That Jesus is God. Conversely, whenever in these scriptures of John, we see an argument, we see people attacking Jesus, we see conflict, whether it's his followers or his detractors, the root of all that conflict is Who am I? Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? His followers who follow him because he can do miracles or because he's a good teacher, when they come face to face with his divinity, there's a dividing line. Some stay and follow and worship. Many walk away. John is not satisfied that we just simply believe Jesus came and died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's not enough. He wants us to see that true faith is faith that believes that Jesus is God. This book is not about Jesus. It's about God. Let me say that again. The Gospel of John is not about Jesus' deliverance of us from sin. It is about God's deliverance of us from sin. You see, from the very beginning, and we're gonna get there here with verse three in a minute, from the very beginning with creation until the very end, everything that happens, happens with a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together. Creation, redemption, eternal glory, is all the work of the triune God. There is no part of creation which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit do not work together. There is no part of redemption in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit do not work together. There is no part of eternal glory that will not be the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together. John wants us to see the deliverance that comes through Jesus— he has a unique role as the deliverer in terms of the one who dies on the cross for our sins, in terms of the, the unique person within the Trinity that became a human being. He, every single member of the Trinity, every single person has a unique role. But deliverance is accomplished through God, which is why in this book, over and over, Jesus points to, everything I do is not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And it's why in this book, Jesus points to the Spirit. He says, look, you want me to go. You want me to leave because then the Spirit will come. Don't you see? This book is about God, the triune God. Jesus is not just a human being who delivers us from sin by dying on a cross. He is a human being who had flesh, who had our infirmities, who was born of Mary, but he is also fully God. So John wants us to see here in verse one through three that Jesus, he's, he's, he's just beginning right in the deep end of the deity of Jesus Christ. From all eternity, he has been the word of God from the beginning of creation, communicating revealing God to us. Here in verse three, he specifically says, all things were made, he says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So, now some points on this specific verse. Point number one. John is talking, of course, about creation. Genesis chapter one tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what we know, if we put Genesis 1 and John 1 together, is that when it says God created the heavens and earth, it is God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you read Genesis 1, how does God create the world? How does God fill the earth with life? He does so through the spoken command. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let the expanse above be separated from the expanse below and let dry land come up and let the land be filled with animals and vegetation and the seas filled with fishes and the the heavens filled with birds. I'm condensing it all down, but the point is, everything that happens in Genesis 1 happens through God's spoken word. All things were created through the word of God. So what that means simply is that the person who will become Jesus, who will live among us, is also our creator. The person who will become our redeemer is first and foremost our creator. All things. But What I think is going on here, I don't want to lose the forest for the trees, which is the reverse of the normal saying, I know. What I mean by that is I don't get so focused on the details of Jesus' role in creation, that we missed the larger point. What is the larger point? In the Old Testament, whenever anyone wanted to talk about God, about God being God, about him being unique, supreme, sovereign, whenever anyone wanted to exalt God, one of the primary ways they did that was by talking about God as the creator. God is the sustainer of all creation. Because you see, there were Back in the ancient world, there was a world full of idols of all kinds of gods, nature gods and mountain gods and sea gods and fertility gods. Gods were everywhere. They were all complete and total trash. There is only one God, and he will be exalted above the heavens. He will be worshiped. He will be praised. He demands it, and he says, I have every right to demand it because I and I alone And the creator. I and I alone am the sustainer of all life. One of the key ways that God exalts his own name, and one of the ways that his people exalt his name and worship, is by exalting God as the creator and the sustainer of all things. For example, let me read to you from Job chapter 38. The book of Job, of course, is about a man who undergoes great suffering as a trial from God. And towards the end, after many false and misleading notions about why God is doing this, God himself comes and answers Job's complaint. And hear how God speaks. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud ways halt. For three chapters, God goes on like this, speaking to Job, over and over, emphasizing that he alone is the creator. Who is Job? And who is anyone to question him? Whenever God exalts his own name, one of the most common ways he does it is by speaking to the fact that he alone is the creator. No one can question him. No one can compete with him. No one can be worshiped but him. Here's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse six to 13. No one is like you, Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not fear you, king of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise leaders of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is brought up from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. What the craftsmen and the goldsmith have made is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. But, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Here, Jeremiah is speaking about idolatry and worshiping false gods, and he he even says, send people out with this message that these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, that they will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Whenever God wants to speak to his uniqueness, to the, the fact that he alone is God, he frequently calls up the fact that he alone is the creator, the maker of heavens and earth. Whenever God wants to condemn false worship, he frequently does so by saying, you worship created things. I am the creator. Now finally, from Isaiah chapter 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun, the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker, concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. Now I read these three passages because I want you to see how consistent this theme in the Old Testament is. That when God wants to speak of his own authority as a supremely exalted, unique Standalone, exclusive, true God. He frequently does so by pointing to his claim, to his act, to his identity as the creator of all things. All things. So we can say if you worship false gods, either you're worshiping nothing or you're worshiping demons. But whatever it is you're worshiping, you're worshiping something that God Himself created. So whenever God wants to wants to speak about his majesty, his grandness, his supremacy, he speaks to his role as a creator. So it is no surprise here in verse 3 of John chapter 1 that when John wants us to see the grandness of Christ, the grandness of his pre-incarnate existence as the eternal Son of God, as the divine and eternal Word of God, he speaks to his identity as well as the Creator. He also is Yahweh. He is no less God than any aspect of the Old Testament speaks of God. Whenever God is in the Old Testament, whenever there's a single verse or a single ink dot about God, which is, of course, the entire thing, Jesus is right there. Long before he is Jesus, he existed forever from eternity as the Son of God, as the Word of God. John wants us from the very beginning to see the grandness of the deity of Christ. It is not enough that we say, I believe in Jesus. It is not enough that we feel that Jesus loves us. It is not enough that we feel we can pray to Jesus. Do we worship him as God? Because you see, the human heart is deceptive above all things. And on the one hand, I can claim Jesus as my homeboy. I can claim Jesus as my brother. I can claim Jesus as my Savior and yet not worship him as God. Jesus must be worshiped. To be saved is to be saved out of sin and death and false worship to life and truth and true worship of the eternal triune God. I am deeply burdened that we live in a day and age where people frequently, flippantly use the name of Jesus, but they don't worship him as God. I am burdened by the story of the Old Testament Israelites, having just been delivered by the mighty hand of God out of slavery in Egypt, out of sin and death, brought to Sinai where the holiness and the glory of God is is dwelling on Mount Sinai. They literally can see it. They can experience it. And in the midst of that, they think they can capture all the glory of God, all the majesty of God, all the supremacy of God in a stupid golden statue. They bow down and they worship it. And then they get up to sin do we turn Jesus into a golden calf do we try to take all the majesty of the word of God, all the glory of the divine son of God all the deity of Christ and do we try to make him into some little figurine that fits into our cultural sinful expectations of God I think we do. And I think we ruin ourselves whenever we truncate worship of the one true divine Son of God. It is not enough to say that we believe in Jesus. It is not enough to say that I feel close to Jesus. Do we worship him? Do we fall on our knees and and sheer awe of his grandeur, of his majesty, of his divinity, And do we worship him? We will see later on in this this book how that is the response of faith, to worship him. The Apostle John wants us to read this book, to have our eyes opened. Open to what? To the divinity of Christ. He holds both his humanity and his divinity And we cannot worship him unless we put both of those things together. We cannot fully appreciate Jesus and his humanity unless we worship him and appreciate and see him for all the fullness that God is. And when we we see and appreciate the fullness of God that is in Christ, we are blown away that he would become a human being. That is the beauty of this gospel, the beauty of the gospel, that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. In addition to seeing the deity of Christ here, there's one other thing that we, we need to see, which is this. Jesus, who is our Redeemer, was first and foremost our Creator. We cannot bifurcate creation and redemption. Even more importantly, we cannot set redemption at odds against creation. What do you mean by all that? What I mean is this. Creation itself was made by Jesus, the eternal word of God. He made all things. He made you. He made me. He made the plants. He made the bees. He made the birds. He made the whales. He made the clouds. He made Jupiter. He made Alpha Centauri. He made all of this. Do you think He views redemption as something that is against the creation he made. Because you see, oftentimes people mistakenly think that redemption is to save us out of this world. We want to get out of this awful, terrible, no good place. Sin has wrecked creation, and we're going to get there in a minute. But at heart, you need to understand and I need to understand that God is not at odds with creation. He made it. Our Redeemer does not hate creation. He made it. In fact, just the opposite. Have you ever asked the question, why did Jesus come? Why did God deliver us? Why would he do all of these things? Why would Jesus die on a cross and go to death for my sin? Now, you might say, well, John 3.16, right here in this book, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him shall have eternal life. Amen. Amen. God so loved the world. But the question is, why? Why does God love me? Why does God love you? Why does God love the world? He is holy and omnipotent and sovereign and transcendent. If the universe is as big as as, as scientists tell us it is, why does he love our world? This teeny tiny little speck. Why does he love you and me so much so that he would come to earth as a human being and even die on the cross for my sin? Why? We might say, well, God is love. So God is love and he loves us and that's it. God is love. But that's a circular argument. Love has a foundation. Love has a reason. Love has a motivation. What is God's foundation for loving us? What is God's foundation for redeeming us? The foundation for all of redemption is creation. To put it simply, God loves us because he made us, Jesus made you the second person of the Trinity, as a member of the the triune Godhead who would become Jesus, he, along with the Father and the Spirit, together created all things. So as much as we can claim that Jesus is our Redeemer, we can also say Jesus is our Creator. God created all things. That includes the word of God, right here. Creation is the grounds for redemption. Why does God so love the world? Why does Jesus come? Why does God care at all about us? Because he made us. Every last little atom of the universe was made by God. And sin is bigger than just my own personal sin against God. It is cosmic. Our sin ruined, wrecked, shattered, tarnished God's creation. And so when Jesus comes to redeem a people to himself, to deliver us, when God comes to deliver us, the bigger picture is that God is setting right his creation that was ruined at the fall. God wants to put creation back in order. It's also why in this book, when we see Jesus so angry at sin, when we see him so distraught over death, of course, it is in the immediate sense because he cares about the people. But why does he care about them? Because he made them. Sin and death are the deepest affront, the deepest form of violence against God's creation. And so with every fiber of his infinite being, God hates them. And he sent Jesus that through his death, these things would be banished, destroyed, crushed. God loves you. God loves the world. God has redeemed us because He created us. That is the grounds of salvation, the grounds of redemption. God has creator rights over all creation. And Jesus has come to reassert those rights in the face of those who oppose him. I pray that this message gives you hope and encouragement this morning. I ask and I pray right now that as you as you close your Bible, as you go into your own time of prayer, that you would pray for this vision of Jesus, the vision of the eternal, divine, holy Son of God. And I pray that if you or me, not if, but when, we are guilty of diminishing Jesus in our lives and in our hearts, that God would show us how we are doing so, convict us of our sin, lead us to repentance. The essence of sin is the diminishment of God so that I can take his place. As I battle with sin my whole life, I will battle against the sinful temptation to diminish God and to exalt myself. These verses are so good for us because they are such a dose of Bible truth that God is God. And as we enter into the majesty of Christ, the deity of Christ, we lose ourselves in worship. And that is the best thing for our souls. I hope also that in this time as you, you put pieces together, that redemption is not a standalone, in and of itself, thing, that it is part of creation, that God redeems his creation, that that is the motivation and the ground for his love and the reason why he came. That that encourages you to know that because you're God's, because he made you, he will never stop loving you, he will never give up on you, he will be faithful to you. And in response to that amazing truth, that you give your life to him and that you would worship him as your creator. Let me close now in this prayer. God, thank you so much for this time with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray you would bless this preaching of your word and the hearers who have heard it, that they would hear by the spirit, that you would speak to them. I pray that you would sanctify them in Christ. In his name I pray, amen.